Welcome back, listeners, to a long-awaited reunion episode of Riddles in the Dark. I know you guys missed me last time, and so uh, I I couldn't stay away. Apparently, the (laughs) the introductions just aren't the same without me rambling away at you. and so, uh, so we're back, and of course, it's an incredibly exciting time. There is the uh, uh, MythCon just happened, and so we've got reports about that. Um, San Diego Comic Con is happening right now, although as far as I can tell, nothing really earth-shattering has come out of that. And so uh, we'll be talking a little bit about those, but mostly we're going to get right into um, Bilbo and the Ring. Uh, and of course, obviously, the the ring is not the central artifact of The Hobbit, but we've been speculating for a long time that uh, they would be doing something interesting with it or playing it up because expectations would be that it would play a larger role since we've already had the Lord of the Rings films. And so we're going to give you the breakdown, the analysis uh, in the way that only we can, since we are the preeminent Tolkien podcast on the Internet <laughs> – <laughs> so I'm your co-host Dave Kale, and with me, as always, is the illustrious Tolkien professor Corey Olson and Trish Lambert. Hi, guys. And, the, and just the regular old Trish Lambert. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Good morning. Yes, today we good get morning. to talking about the Ring, and uh, this is something we've been kind of talking around for a while, but uh, we really want to think it through a little bit more fully here this morning. Um, you know, this is this is a major issue because, as Dave said, it's not. You know, when you think about the Hobbit, but certainly when you think about the Hobbit book, uh, the Ring is not. Uh, you know, is very far from the central idea. Um, really, the in many ways, you could say that the Ring is sort of the center, or or at least the the sort of cornerstone um, of. Of the adaptation challenge of coming in and doing the Hobbit film as he is again, as of course we've talked about many times, Peter Jackson making the decision, which I think is entirely sensible, uh, to tell the Hobbit story from the post Lord of the Rings point of view. That is, with as a build up to the Lord of the Rings, um, necessitates a different treatment of the Ring. The Ring is the central problem. The Ring problem is what led Tolkien to revise the Hobbit uh, as he did. That was the one thing that, you know, there were a couple, you know, changes and uh, sort of nitpicks and corrections that he made here and there um, at various times, especially later on in 1962. But he was, um, but the only major revision he did was his rewriting of Chapter 5. And again, that was necessitated by the change to the ring. Um, so just to kind of go over ground that I know is going to be familiar uh, to many of you, um, but just to, to, to say the thing that needs to be said before we really begin this conversation, when Tolkien wrote The Hobbit, the ring that Bilbo's ring is not a ring of power. It's just an invisibility. It's a magic ring that makes you invisible. There is no indication in the first edition of The Hobbit that there's anything sinister or dangerous about the ring at all. Bilbo finds two items, which are sort of magical items, arguably three if you count his male shirt, though that kind of evolved later on as well. The concept of Mithril didn't really um, come about until in the later revisions. That's one of the things, by the way, that he added in the, in the third edition of The Hobbit, um, was he, he included the word mithril to describe uh, Bilbo's coat, um, which it wasn't. Silver steel was what he called it in the first edition. But anyway, he finds a magic sword, he finds a magic ring, and then eventually he's given that magical coat. Um, and there, the, you know, the magical sword and the magical ring are basically in the same category of, like, you know, 
wonderful things. You know, this is Bilbo coming into contact with the ancient legendary magical stories that he has heard, stories of the elves and the ancient days of Middle-earth that he's heard about and, you know, heard songs about and is amazed to find himself in a story like that and, uh, and, and finding things like that. Um, so... So and that's how the ring is treated. He is reluctant to tell people about it. You know, his reluctance to tell the dwarves about it has nothing to do with the possessiveness associated with the ring of power that makes the possessor want to keep it to himself. It has nothing to do with that. In the but that's because he's wanting to take credit. Remember, it has it has all to do with his relationship with the dwarves and with his uh, you know, incompetence as a burglar. When he begins, of course, he knows that the dwarves have no real respect for him. And we see this at play back in the troll episode when he decides that he has to try to do something burglarious even though he knows it's a really bad idea. Um, but he can't bear the thought of going back to Thorin and company empty-handed. It's that same kind of motivation, that same sense of, you know, his his feeling useless and him being aware that his, uh, his traveling companions think that he's not any good, to use his phrase. Um, he... Uh, it's these things that lead him to want to conceal the ring because it raises his, you know, as I said in a podcast long ago, it raises his street cred with the dwarves. This is why he sneaks in invisible into the circle of the dwarves and takes the ring off in the midst of them. Um, because that, and as we know, you know, Balin is really impressed and he's like, you know, not even a mouse has ever sneaked by, you know, quietly, you know, carefully and quietly under my very nose before. Um, and so they all think that now they're all beginning to believe that he might actually be a first-class burglar. That's why he doesn't reveal the ring. He just he he wants to be able to keep getting credit for it. He wants to keep it as a secret, his own little sort of ace in the hole. Um, so that's that's you know. So again, all of those things. You may remember the passage in the Goblin Tunnels right after he's escaping from Gollum, and there's that passage where uh, in where in the book it, you know, it says that, remember he goes in and he finds that the ring isn't on his finger and he cries out in an echo of Gollum's despairing cry. Um, and, you know, the narrator says whether it was a last trick of the ring before it took a new master um, or, or, or whether it was chance, that passage also is a later edition uh, by Tolkien's. There's no ring playing malicious trick on new master or attempting to reveal itself, you know, as we from the Lord of the Rings perspective might reinterpret that passage to say, well, Bilbo, who wrote this, didn't really understand what was going on. Uh, clearly, this was the ring attempting to reveal itself to the orcs. Well, again, that, that doesn't happen in the first edition. In the first edition, uh, he, 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 he does come in without the ring, but that's just because he wasn't expecting the goblins there. He had taken the ring off. Um, he wasn't wearing the ring at all because he wasn't invisible. Uh, he was guided up by Gollum, perfectly visible, uh, and, and perfectly voluntarily on Gollum's part, um, and then goes out and discovers, oh my, look, the hall is full of goblins, and then he puts the ring on. Um, so again, so there's no there's no malicious trick by the ring. Um, it has no malice. It has no negative impact upon him whatsoever. But of course, all of these things that I've been talking about, that is his near discovery by the goblins, uh, his reluctance to reveal the presence of the ring to the dwarves and Gandalf, all of these things are able to be recast by Tolkien in the brilliant 
work that he does, one of the things actually that I admire most in Tolkien's writing actually is how he managed The Hobbit. Um, retroactively on this, how he took all of those references which had nothing to do with it and made them in, you know, made them retroactively with, without cha with changing very, very little, managed to make that whole story fit retroactively perfectly into the later story he was coming to tell, even though it didn't exist at all. So, um, a major question then is when you're retelling The Hobbit from, Peter, you know, as Peter Jackson is doing from Peter Jackson's standpoint, um, how, the ring now has to be different. Not only is uh, is is the ring actually is is the ring actually acting on Bilbo negatively, so that now his reluctance is going to be connected with that immediate temptation to possessiveness that we see the ring exerting on, that we know from, from the Lord of the Rings that the ring exerts on people. But also, um, potentially you have some kind of indications at least. Um, it's a little hard to resist this artistically, uh, even if it doesn't play a big part in the story, uh, to indicate that Bilbo is becoming corrupted by it, or that there's at least the danger of corruption by it. This is something, of course, that gets brought up in the, in the Lord of the Rings. Gandalf explains to Frodo that the reason that, Gan that Bilbo had escaped harm for so long from the ring and still had the strength to give it up voluntarily is that he began his ownership of the ring with pity um, when he didn't kill Gollum. Had he, you, you know, this is, in a sense, that's the point where Bilbo's story and Gollum's story diverge. Gollum finds the ring and immediately murders somebody for it. Bilbo finds the ring and immediately doesn't murder somebody. Um, and that the, the difference in that choice, Gandalf suggests, has everything to do with the difference in the trajectory of their two characters and of their careers and of their relationships with the ring. So that's important. But, uh, but we know that the ring does have an impact on Bilbo. And as I say... From a, from a sort of an artistic standpoint, it's hard to imagine Peter Jackson, knowing that this is the ring of power, I think there's going to be an expectation on the part of the audience um, to sort of show that this is not, I mean, he can't, he basically certainly can't just depict it as it was in the original. That is, as just, it plays no role other than being a handy ring of invisibility. Uh, that that Bilbo can use at certain times. He's got to, it's almost got to play it up more than that. And one of the ways in which um, that is that is likely to be played up is in the way in which it is likely to be seen to be corrupting him or at least tempting him, even if he doesn't give in to the temptations, um, that he will start having some temptations to do things. Um, and I suspect that's going to be focused on, on, on the... Uh, on the secrecy issue. Um, anyway, so those are the general parameters. That's kind of what's at stake here. And as I say, this is a really core issue. There's a chance, of course, Peter Jackson could take the route of simply downplaying it. He could not. He could make it not a very central feature. Um, but you know, the the status of the ring as you know the central symbol and the central focal point of the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy. Um, I think makes it impossible, almost impossible, virtually impossible, for Peter Jackson simply to downplay it, because everybody recognizes the ring, uh, and everybody knows the significance of the ring. Um, and in some ways, I think it's going to be jarring for people, especially people who don't know the books at all. Um, 
people who are who are just movie fans who have seen the Lord of the Rings films and they come to this, um, it's going to be a challenge to 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 the fact that the plot of the of the movies is not centered on the ring. If you just watch the Lord of the Rings films and then you're watching the Hobbit film and you see at the end of the, you know near the end of the first Hobbit film. Uh, Bilbo discovers the Ring of Power, which is the focal point of all of the, 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 the later trilogy, you might reasonably assume that the ring is going to be the center point of the plot for the rest of this film. That we're going to see, ah, you know, what is the early history of the ring and how it got to Frodo and how all of these things for this later film are set into place. Where, of course, the Hobbit story from the book, the ring is far from central. It's extremely tangential. Um, it facilitates Bilbo's actions at several points, um, but it is certainly not the focal point of the story. So, um, those are—it's a really tricky balancing act that Jackson has to play. I think um, not to ignore the Ring in ways that's going to seem really strange uh, to viewers, but also not to overly disproportionately uh, emphasize it in ways that's just going to warp the plot of the story out of all recognition. And I will say that, you know, for all of the other changes that were made, uh, the focus on the story of, on the Hobbit's actual story um, was, I thought, pretty good. That is, you know, very little in the main overall trajectory of the story was changed. Um, I know people complain about the Mirkwood and the Dol Guldur stuff, but again, I don't consider that a major change. That's there in The Hobbit. It just happens in the background, and Peter Jackson is showing it. Um, uh, I mean, Gandalf does go off, and the White Council does kick the Necromancer out of Mirkwood. That happens in The Hobbit. Um, it just happens off stage, and we never hear about it until the last chapter. Um, so, but again, if if if, you're, if if we're gonna bring in some kind of ring-centered plot thread um, into the films, that becomes a major change. And I think that that's not impossible, given that we're supposed to be having, and I assume having in film too, the introduction of the Nazgul. Um, you know, we got a cameo appearance by a Nazgul in the first film, and if we're going to have the whole tombs of the Nazgul thing and the Nazgul at large, uh, you know, with the ring rates running around, it seems conceivable that we could possibly get a ring-oriented subplot. I'm not sure I expect that to happen, but it seems conceivable. Anyway, so these are sort of the questions that, uh, that we're going to be thinking and talking through today to sort of think about how Peter Jackson is going to approach this very difficult, and in some ways, I think it's, it's one, of the, one of the most difficult and complicated adaptation choices uh, for Peter Jackson to make. So, Dave, what are your initial thoughts here on this? What, what, what's your, for, you know, what's your overall impression coming from the first film uh, to the second film? What, 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 what sort of start with the first film? What, what did the things you saw in the first film lead you to expect from the second film about where we're going with the ring? Well, um, I think if you if you look at the scene where the the um, Riddles in the Dark scene where he acquires the ring, um, that they they definitely intentionally make connections to the Lord of the Rings yes. films. Um, so, so for starters, like Bilbo's acquiring of the ring and like the, the whole little thing where he slips and falls and it flies up in the air and lands on his finger is like, is like yes. almost exactly the same as how Frodo, um, I believe it's the scene where they're in Bree and the prancing pony yeah. and Frodo falls under the table and the ring flies up in the air and his hands stretched out and then it lands on his finger so uh, that to me like 
it, it that suggests that they are already trying to make some sort of connection like like um I think that scene is is supposed to actually indicate will on the um the part of the ring that that it's you know that it intends to land on the fingers of those hobbits that it's trying I don't know what it's trying to accomplish necessarily it's accomplishing different things in each of those scenes but nevertheless that it that it, it has some intentionality um, and also the ring vision is pretty similar. It seems it's less menacing in, in this film um, as it sort of naturally needs to be. There isn't like a, a, a Sauron eyeball sort right. of, you know, right. staring down yeah, on when, him. But, but when Bilbo is in is in ring vision, there isn't a flaming eyeball looking, you know, on the other end of the line. There. <laughs> that, yeah, that's right. Yeah. No one's no one's picked. No one's picked up the receiver on the other end. Yet. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but. But it's still it's still similar enough that I think I think there's already and then the musical cues and that kind of stuff um, I right. think are supposed to be and then and then the other thing too uh, of course is the portrayal of Gollum is is similar enough that all of those things I think are are meant to uh, those are all things that would have felt very familiar to folks who are coming from the first films and aren't familiar with the book. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. And certainly you're right that the the ring falling onto his finger while he's lying on his back is certainly the most uh the most glaring connection. Um and it does suggest just taking the that scene in the Fellowship of the Ring film on its own for a second. What we saw there, I mean, you sort of just think about how that moment works in the film and what kind of cues it's giving the viewers. There are a couple things, right? One is Frodo's helplessness and comparative lack of will. That is, it's not a question of Frodo putting on the ring. Mm -hmm. um, his own, his lack of volition uh, and his comparative helplessness is indicated by his being flat on his back, right? I mean, he's just lying there. He is a, he is a, um, you know, he is well not a victim, but a patient in any case. He is not the agent of that action. The ring is the agent of that action. Um, as shown by how it's wobbling in the air in order to aim for his finger, um, which again, the effect of that scene in the in the Fellowship of the Ring film was to give a dramatic and visual cue to the audience that the ring itself has will. You know, the book talks about how the ring, you know, meant to be found and meant to, you know, leave somebody else, and that language is used in the film too. But it's it's that moment, I think. Um, when the ring falls onto Frodo's finger in Brie, that Peter Jackson is really giving a visual cue to show, see, look, the ring, the ring itself has has volition. It it wants and tries to do things on its own. Mm -hmm. So, taking those two things then together and thinking about Bilbo's scene in the first film of the first Hobbit film, um, you know, it, it, it establishes a connection, but. In establishing a connection with that scene in particular, um, it, it's kind of suggestive because it does show that the ring is, if, if again we take the same things from it, Bilbo certainly has no intention. He doesn't even know what he's holding. Frodo at least knows the significance of the thing he's holding at the time. Bilbo is even more a, a victim or a patient of that action than Frodo was. Um, the volition of the ring is also clear. Um, and I think it's intriguing because if you ask, you know, Dave, as you were just suggesting, like, what does the ring want, right? What is the ring trying to accomplish <clears throat> in those two scenes? And it's pretty clear what it's trying to accomplish in in the Fellowship of the Ring film, 
and that is to reveal itself to the Nazgul, um, which it basically successfully does. We see, you know, the Nazgul reacting and, and descending upon Bree, um, you know, right when that happens. Um, so the ring is trying, is, so in the, in the Fellowship of the Ring film, that moment is not only the ring doing something on purpose, but doing something very malicious on purpose, attempting to reveal Frodo to really to betray Frodo to his death in order for the ring to reveal itself to the servants of Sauron who are nearby. The, what the ring is trying to accomplish in the riddles in the dark scene is just to escape Gollum. Um, I mean, the phrase which is used in the book and which is used in the Fellowship of the Ring film in the prologue sequence is that the ring abandoned Gollum, right? That's the verb that it uses. Um, so it's abandoned in Gollum, but you'll remember the visual picture that it was connected with that phrase when, when you know, Kate Blanchett says it abandoned Gollum uh, in the prologue is the ring falling and bouncing. Um, like, it, you know, so just the, the, the it's falling out of falling or jumping out of Gollum's pocket is uh, um, is the abandonment of Gollum as it's depicted there in, in the Fellowship of the Ring film. Um, so we're sort of invited, I think, to see what the ring is doing there is taking, deliberately taking a new master. It's latching on to somebody else who's going to take it out of the mountains. But of course, the connection and that you know that very close visual parallel between Bilbo and Frodo that Peter Jackson has established does seem to me to imply malice on the part of the ring that it's it, certainly the ring is saving Bilbo instead of betraying him Frodo it's trying to reveal and betray in Bree at that moment Bilbo it conceals and protects so you know one might be tempted to say well see look here's the ring acting oppositely um, but, and, and it is in its immediate context, but it does, I think, you know, if we're remembering Frodo and what the ring was doing to Frodo when it did that, when we are watching Bilbo in the Hobbit film, I think we have reason to think that uh, this ring is up to no good and that no good is going to come of Bilbo, is going to come to Bilbo of, of, of keeping this. Because you'll recall the, the new significance also that this scene is given in the first Hobbit film is that this is also the first moment that Bilbo ever puts it on. That Bil This is the moment where Bilbo discovers that it's an invisibility ring. Um, so this is, you know, in a sense, it's, there is still revealing that's going, it's the ring revealing itself to Bilbo in a sense. Hey, look, I'm a magic ring. I'm an invisibility ring. Um, and that's, so that's sort of, that's, that's, that's what we can see happening there. And again, the, the, so the parallels, I think, are really interesting to think about. Um, and, but you can see, you know, if sort of th if thinking about, you know, sort of my own question there, what does that parallel suggest to us about what Peter Jackson is, is doing, about how Peter Jackson is treating the ring? I think it does a very interesting job because on the one hand, it manages to stay quite close, in fact, to the Hobbit plot. No, he doesn't fall on his back and fling it up in the air and catch it on his finger, um, but it's actually kind of close to that. He, he, he's got the thing in his pocket and he falls down and the ring goes on his finger. I mean, it's not, he, he doesn't, it is, it is falling down by chance uh, that he, you know, and putting his finger on, 
you know, largely uh, putting uh, putting the ring on largely by accident that Bilbo discovers the invisibility of the ring in the Hobbit. Um, so he's he's following that closely, but in doing by doing it in that way, he manages to imply all of this sort of sinister stuff. Um, and lead us to sort of wonder about that and begin to ask the question, is the ring doing something bad to Bilbo? Um, are we going to see sort of the bad news, uh, uh, you know, that this ring is sort of kicking in at some, po at some point soon? I mean, just to open that question um, in... In, in really a pretty subtle way that the parallel to Frodo is not subtle, um, but the effect of it, I think, actually is, and I think it works pretty well. Right. Um, well, what, what sort of... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. You go ahead. Well, I was just thinking about what kind of, you know, thinking about how we have the ring later. I mean, we really only get the one ring wearing incident. Um, because he wears it and runs out of the cave and uh, uh, and then catches up with people. Oh, and by the way, that's another thing that I meant to mention. The scene that we get, and I think it's it's uh, it's a fascinating use of you know what we call ring vision, you know the sort mm -hmm. of blurry um, you know effect that uh, that Jackson does. Um, I thought it was a really fascinating use of the ring vision effect when he's standing in the crack, uh, you know, in that, like, side tunnel crack with Gollum at the edge, and he's watching Gollum cowering and hiding while the dwarves and Gandalf run past. Yes. And we get those shots of Martin Freeman's face with, like, oh, my gosh, that's them, uh, but I can't get there. Um, but that image of the ring vision sight of Gandalf and the dwarves running by. So he's seeing his friends, and they're bathed in light because we've got the sunlight coming in through the gap um, that they're heading for. Um, so he's in darkness and looking at everything through this distorted ring vision, and he's seeing his friends and Gandalf, who's especially bright, um, in, in the ring vision thing with Gollum between him and his friends. Um, and I think that that scene visually works it suggests, anyway, I think, some kind of powerful symbolism, and I'm not sure if we're justified in running with this symbolism that I think it suggests. But, but don't I let that is. stop you. Yeah, yeah well, I, I pretty much never do, so that, that's relatively safe. Um, but I, I, we see his view of his friends, you know, so we see his friends distorted in his eyes by the possession of the ring, you know, by the wearing of the ring. Um, we see them in light and him in shadow, and most importantly, we see Gollum lurking between him and them. But Gollum is not lurking as a menace. You know, Gollum is not standing there growling. Gollum is cowering in fear of Gandalf and the dwarves when he when when he's doing. When, yeah, he's kind he's of there. a he's kind of a uh, a pitiable sort of pathetic yes. looking character. You're right. That yes. that is interesting because. Um, the ring, so we know that the ring has the ability, sort of, we, we have many cases where the ring affects people's perceptions of, of things. Um, there's the scene between Frodo in Rivend and Bilbo in Rivendell, where, where sort of their right. confrontation over the ring causes um, causes Bilbo to be sort of transformed in Frodo's eyes. And, and in the movie, in the film, they, they, they take that and, and make it even more explicit and turn Bilbo into a strange little crazy column creature yes. Yes. kind of yes. disturbing um yes. 
And 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 then there's the cases in later cases in Mordor where just by possessing it, um, uh, Sam is transformed in the eyes of uh, other of like the orcs that perceive yes. him. And and it seems like usually when it does that, when it has that effect on people, it's it's a um, it, it like it causes the per maybe the either the person. Um, possessing the ring to perceive the other the other uh, um, people around him as like you know clutching or greedy or trying to take the ring from him um, as yes. you know ugly frightening threatening or 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 sort of the flip is that that the other people who see the guy possessing the ring see him as kind of you know powerful and commanding uh, and here we here as you say like it doesn't do either of those things it makes it makes Gollum seem pitiable and pathetic. Um, and I wonder if that's it, I, intentional or not. I don't know. It gives, gives sort of almost the, the idea that like it's related to the way in which Bilbo has just acquired the ring, that he's been acting in, in um, pity and mercy and, uh, and sort of kindness almost. Um, right. Right. I mean, that's the very moment when he's just about to show his, his, you know, his pity and to spare Gollum's life. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, the way that I would read it is thinking about um, basically Gollum not as an enemy, because he doesn't look like an enemy there, but at more as like a stand-in for Bilbo. Mm -hmm. You know, that what Bilbo is looking at is like a tableau of what could be. You know, him being separated from his friends, because his friends are going by and leaving him behind. Um, and the Gollum figure, which is, you know, one of the things that happens in that moment in the book, um, that is the moment when Bilbo has pity on Gollum, is what happens, and it finally happens there. It doesn't really happen at all before, um, is Bilbo identifying with Gollum, Bilbo having compassion for Gollum and imagining what it would be like to be Gollum. And, um, so, um, so there, I think we can, that is what makes me want to sort of read it, read the film scene that way mm -hmm. to see that like basically what, what Bilbo is seeing that is Gollum in the foreground and his friends in blow of what could be for him and what still might be for him in a sense. Um, oh, I and, think you're giving Jackson way too much credit there. <laughs> Hey, you know, this goes back to the whole authorial intention thing. Yeah, right? it, it almost doesn't <laughs> matter. That's true. That's true. I don't care. That's true. I, don't, That's it, true. I actually you, like your your in, your interpretation better, frankly. It's got more layer to it. Hey, it's cool. See, but that's the thing. That's what that that's what I. This is actually what I liked about the Hobbit film from the beginning, um, when I first saw it. Was that like there's stuff here? You know, it works. Like, yeah, there's stuff that's there's stuff that's kind of that's kind of you know dorky, but uh, you know, and 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 some stuff that's kind of irritating. But there's a lot of meat there. There's there's a lot there's a lot that's that's you can yeah. do stuff with, you know. And this is. Um, yeah, this is one of the things that I uh, that I often, you know, the question is not, did an author, was an author thinking this? Like, the justification for a reading is not, was this what was in the author's mind? Because ultimately, mind reading is not what we're trying to do. What we're doing is reading a story and seeing what are the, you know, 
what are the meanings there in the story? What what works in the story? What does the story do? And what does the story say? Which might well be a great deal more and even something different than what was in the author's mind. Um, and I usually find this is kind of how authors themselves will talk about this. Um, when you listen to them, especially Tolkien, talking about stories and how he didn't really know what was going on and... Um, how he sort of talks about the story as if it's something outside himself that he's discovering instead of something he's making up. By the way, uh, um, interesting aside, this is yeah. only tangentially related. Um, I heard I, I heard an interview a while ago uh, with Stephen King on um, NPR, uh, Terry Gross's you know Fresh Air show, uh, talking about it, the the latest crime novel he wrote, and and he described exactly this phenomenon too, because she she had sort of asked him like, oh, you know. It's so interesting that you, you sort of plant these clues along the way that tells who the killer is at the end. Did you know all along? And he explicitly says, like, no, I actually had no idea until <laughs> until I got to the end of the book and I was writing writing who the killer was. Like, I really didn't plan this ahead. I had no idea. And I thought that was really cool. I like that idea of the that, um, you know, of the story revealing itself to him. And, and it definitely made me think of Tolkien. So uh, yeah. and George and George yeah. R. R. Martin has said similar things, too. Mm hmm. No, it's it's a, it's, it's, a, it's fairly clear that George R. R. Martin has not planned this out and has no idea. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I don't think that would come as a shock to anybody. But uh, <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, 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 exactly. I mean, I you can hear a lot of authors talking that way, and I think I think it's a really important phenomenon. You know, I mean, it's one of the things that makes stories so interesting. It's one of the things that makes literature good. If a book that was written really is only a subset of the active mind of a, right. a, a given author, then that makes it a kind of a small thing, uh, depending on the size of the active mind of the author, but still, uh, you know, a, a comparatively small thing. What really gives books a life of their own, what really makes the great books great, um, is that kind of independent life where there's there are meanings and there's depth to it there are things that work and things that it says that aren't just the stuff that was consciously planned uh by by the author i mean this is this is how stories work so uh so anyway so like okay, i said this I, is why i, I like jump, the hobbit I, film i am jumping in here um two okay. things one is is a, a observation of my own and then i want to read something that somebody wrote um I, I do also think that that scene, you know, where Gollum is in the Ring Vision, where Gollum is looking so pathetic, is uh, also to to you know to show Frodo's staying his hand isn't because Frodo's a, a chicken. You know, we've seen Frodo already fight an orc in you know in Bilbo. In, in Bilbo. In the, I mean Bilbo. Yeah. Hello. Yeah. Uh, I get them mixed up. Hobbits all look alike. Get it together, (laughs) Trish. Come on now. I know. Anyway, so we've seen Bilbo fighting, you know, an orc, you know, before he fell down the hole. And he was certainly not, you know, chicken about it. So it's kind of like, I think, uh, another thing is, you know, we see Bilbo reacting to the way Gollum's looking in in terms of, you know, um, he obviously, Freeman does such a good job of it, you know, we're looking like he's about ready to just whack him. And then he thinks so you know we have sort of the precedent previously the other thing is i wanted to read mariel gage who i believe is a probably a long-time listener first-time caller yes yes because i don't remember saying um has written a really interesting uh, question here she says i 
I believe it's a she, I hope. Yes. Um, I really like the parallel between Bilbo and Frodo in the first moment of wearing the ring because it stresses once again the agency of the ring. It is willing to save Bilbo to escape Gollum. Jackson was very careful to make the ring a character in its own right throughout the first trilogy, and I'm curious as to how you think he will continue that throughout The Hobbit. Which moments from the book could be used to emphasize that, or will he have to add scenes in? And I think this is a great question, because it is true. You know, we have the yeah. you know the talk and all that stuff, and I, I, I remember the Empire you know, Magazine article from last year that Dave, you know, summarized for us. Of course, you know, who knows, Jack? may have decided differently, but Jackson in that article was quoted as saying that the, the ring vision and the effects on Bilbo will, will be, you know, we'll see it gradually become more um, uh, marked as the films go on. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I'll turn it over to you. I mean, I think, you know, the ring as a character, I would imagine Jackson is still going to develop that. Yeah, I would think so. That's exactly the challenge, right? Is that the ring was a character and a central character, arguably the central character of uh, of the first trilogy. Um, it's likely to be a character again, but this time it's a minor character. It is far from central in the story that's going to be told. And that's the thing that's going to be so tricky to balance. Um, because how do you take that you know, that person who was the, because um, it's not like just giving somebody a cameo role, right? Um, uh, you can have, you can have somebody who was, a, you know, like take Saruman, for instance, right? Saruman was not a central character, but a pretty significant character in the, fir in the first trilogy. And then he just makes a cameo appearance in the Hobbit film. Okay. So that's one way that you do somebody who is an important character in one film, and you can bring him in but not make him the central character in the second film and just do some, you know, but we did in the White Council scene get some, like, ominous foreshadowings of divisions among them, and knowing that Saruman is, is going to go bad as we do, we can kind of see hints of how it's going to happen in his attitude towards Radagast and Gandalf and everything else. So, you know, that's one way, that's an easy way to manage it. But that's not the situation with the ring, because the ring is not is not making a cameo appearance. It's not going to get one or two scenes which foreshadow what's going to happen in the next in the you know in, in the other movies. It's going to be part of Bilbo's story for both of the last two films. So he can't just do that. He can't just cameo it. So how do you take the character uh, of the ring and introduce it while not making it? the central character. Um, and that is, is I, I'm not really sure where he's going to go with that. I do think, I do agree with Marielle that he's, that he's likely to continue that, that he's likely to develop that. That Bilbo's own relationship with the ring, which concept, again, is totally alien to the Hobbit book. Bilbo doesn't have a relationship with the ring any more than he has a relationship with his sword. I mean, heck, he has more of a relationship with his pocket handkerchiefs than he has with the ring um, in in the book. But um, he, in the movie, probably is going to have a relationship with the ring. Um, and so that, as I suspect, where... That, I suspect, is going to be the line that's really going to be drawn. Um, how, you, how you make the ring a side character, a, a minor character, rather than a focal point, is to keep him localized, not, part of, not becoming a, part of the, a major part of the main story, but localized to Bilbo. Um, so that we do get moments of Bilbo 
on his own and his own relationship with the ring and his own contemplation of the ring and figuring the ring out and being affected by the ring. Um, but that's its own little subplot in the midst of everything else. In fact, this might be an argument for Jackson not having Bilbo reveal the ring right. for longer than he than he doesn't. And then we're getting into this, what our riddle is going to be about later on is when and how um, is Bilbo going to reveal the ring. Um, but uh, but if if that that would be one reason to think that perhaps Peter Jackson would keep the ring secret longer than it's kept secret in the book, um, because then it it remains a private a private issue for Bilbo, a private you know one on one between the ring. Which actually brings up uh, both Sharon Hoff and Gabriel Ransom have brought up sort of similar themes, which is do we think there will be any interaction from afar between the necromancer and the ring. In other words, will Bilbo suddenly feel some pull or, you know, like Sharon says, uh, what, are we going to see him react, respond to the ring? Do, do we think there's going to be any of that? I, I tend to think not because I really, I think, tend to agree more with what you just were talking about where the ring is still a minor character. Well, see, that's one of the biggest challenges, though. Um, well, it's not one of the biggest challenges, but it's but it is a bit, but it is a very significant challenge. If Frodo putting on the ring in Bree alerts Nazgul in the Shire that he's there, how much more is Bilbo putting a ring on the ring in Mirkwood going to alert the Necromancer, you know, Sauron himself, that the ring is nearby? Um, that seems a logical necessity, but at the same time, that can't happen, can it? I mean, if Sauron discovers, if if, if oh, it would, are, change, it would change the whole story, wouldn't it? <laughs> I mean, it's not possible that things could proceed in the way they're supposed to proceed if Sauron actually discovers that. Um, I mean, I think practically speaking, it can't happen, but. Um, but uh, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, unless the only okay. I'm, I'm trying. I'm, I'm, what I'm doing is I'm trying to think through scenarios in which it's possible. Scenarios in which it could happen. Maybe maybe wood serves as a insulator. <laughs> <laughs> so he's far enough from Dog Oldur that all the trees get in there. You have to interference. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah. Sauron's down there in Dol Guldur saying, I, "I'm getting something, but the reception's awful down here. I just, I can't pinpoint it." Uh, yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe. Um, <laughs> yeah, imagine you know Sauron only getting one bar on his ringometer down there. You know. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, um, no, no, I don't think I, 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 I don't see that happening. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to think of like even more like wacky scenarios in which there could be any kind of <clears throat> Sauron or the or the Ring Wraiths pursuing the Ring subplot, which does not end in a preemptive <laughs> preemptive strike on the Lord of the Rings films. And the only thing I could think of is if the pursuit of the Ring ends up getting mixed up in and thwarted by the Battle of Five Armies and then basically Bilbo disappears. Because if Bilbo disappears with the ring and Gandalf spirits him with some 
increased degree of secrecy back into the West, um, they could potentially argue. I mean, the, remember the Fellowship of the Ring opens with uh, Sauron torturing the location of the Shire out of Gollum. Um, so one could conceivably say Sauron was aware that the wing that the ring was around um, and that somebody had it, but he but it's been taken away and it's somewhere now far away and he has no idea where it is. And Gandalf could very plausibly say, you know, maybe he'll look in Lorien, maybe he'll look in Rivendell, but he's not going to look in the Shire, right? This is going to be the last place Sauron would think um, that the ring is going to be. So I'll sneak Bilbo home and I'll just set Bilbo up and I'll not tell Bilbo. Um, but I'll keep an eye on him and we'll just see how this plays out. I could imagine that. That seems to right. me at least conceivable. Um, and the only major alteration to the plot at the end, you know, in order to make the bridge between the Hobbit film and the and the Lord of the Rings films make sense, would be that Bilbo would that Gandalf would have to take Bilbo away, with much less fanfare than he leaves he makes his homeward journey in the book. Because Bilbo well, left a path a mile wide going home in the book. <laughs> well, like Yana says, I mean. So, I mean, even in the movies, we can't really have Gandalf knowing for sure it's the One Ring by the end of The Hobbit, right? I mean, he... True, he true. Because he still takes off for Minas Tirith back after the long-expected party at the beginning of Fellowship of the Ring movie, right? To kind of confirm his fears. Yes, yes. But uh, in the movie and in the book... Gandalf has some kind of suspicions. Like he doesn't right, right. know for sure that it's well, the One Ring, but he, he suspects thinks it's one that, of the yeah yeah that yeah. this ring is important and needs looking after and could, should probably be hushed up. So Gandalf having some kind of dark suspicions and sneaking Bilbo away, I could see that. Now I'm not saying that this means that I'm I'm predicting that there will be a recognition of and pursuit of the ring. I'm just trying to imagine how it could be even conceivable that it could happen. Uh, and I think I've convinced myself that it's conceivable, not that it would necessarily be a good idea. But at the same time, if you don't do it, you run into continuity problems. This is one of the difficulties with projecting outward from The Hobbit. This is one of the, I mean, The Hobbit, The Hobbit, as Tolkien wrote it in 37, there are several ways in which it does not fit comfortably into the history of the Third Age of Middle-earth as Tolkien later conceived it. And this is one way. I mean, if, if the necromancer is, is Sauron, and right there, and remember the conception in, that we're told in The Lord of the Rings, Sauron as necromancer is not, you know, Sauron in a weakened and smaller state and unable to do anything. So maybe that's why he doesn't find the ring or doesn't realize when Bilbo is, is passing within a you know, few hundred miles of him or whatever. Um, no, uh, he's, he's been building up his power and he's been establishing his kingdom and he's just about ready to declare himself openly again and move back to, to, to Barad-dûr. So, um, so he's not weak and he's not clueless. Um, you know, he's not incapacitated by any stretch. So that question... Why doesn't the necromancer find out about the ring? Why didn't he start searching for it sooner? Why hasn't? Why doesn't he ever? Um, why doesn't he sense it nearby or relatively nearby? Um, uh, and those are continuity questions that are created when you take the Hobbit story and you put it into 
the story of the Third Age of Middle Earth. Um, and so, if Peter Jackson ignores it, he's kind of well doing what Tolkien did, but um, <laughs> right. uh, which is okay. Uh, but but <laughs> there's the book answer. <laughs> yeah, I mean the book answer exactly. There's reason for him not to for him not. I mean, so basically, I think that in some ways he would be justified um, by having that question be asked. You know, by having, especially if the ring rates are going to be at large, as indeed the ring rates were at large um, at that time. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, if we do get some kind of, you know, handful well, you of know, ring there rates was a... to do an exploratory search uh, to see if something's going on, if we get that kind of a subplot, I know like lots of people will yell and scream about that, but I actually think that you know, the the circumstances of the story as a whole, um, I think to some degree justify it or at least make it explicable. You know, there's a scene in, in The Lord of the Rings, I don't think we've ever talked about this, but I remember back when I first saw it, it really bugged me. When they're in Athelion and they've had the conversation with Faramir and Frodo runs away and puts the ring puts the ring on and runs away. And then on, uh, uh, I think he takes the ring off but anyway Nazgul shows up and literally it's like one of those scenes where the helicopter you know comes up right you know to face you he's on the parapet and the Nazgul and his little wing steed is like facing Frodo at that point Frodo yeah. doesn't have the ring on but you know one assumes that Nazgul showed up because of the Frodo put the ring on okay yeah two things about that one is we're a heck of a lot closer to Mordor than we were in the Shire and why isn't the Nazgul at least you know I mean Frodo's right in front of him even though he doesn't have the ring on he should sense it. Second of all, if Frodo put the ring on and the Nazgul sensed it, why the heck didn't he go back and tell his boss? <laughs> hey, right. I was an affiliate. Ring on. You know, right. it's right over there. So right. it's kind of that same thing you're kind of talking about, you know, that Jackson may just kind of do a little sleight of hand here. Yeah, yes. And and, and the other thing to remember is that um Dol Guldur isn't that close. You know, to the Elven King's right. domain. Um, I mean, they don't get within several hundred miles of the place, so it's not like they're creeping around on Sauron's doorstep or something, and Sauron doesn't notice. Um, so, you know, and especially with the way in the film, though, again, this is one of the questions we've been talking about with Mirkwood and stuff. Um, the way in which, so far, the two different, like, you know. I was going to call them theaters, uh, but that doesn't really work with the film now, does it? Uh, the two different you know, arenas of action of the film, um, uh, being the Dol Guldur stuff and the, uh, and the, the quest for Erebor stuff, um, those things, um, those, two, those two have been sort of kept separated. As I say, it will be interesting to see when they get to Mirkwood how close they end up coming and if there is any point of contact between those two different arenas of action. Um, but if there's not, if Jackson keeps them isolated from each other, that will at least make it easier to deal with the, uh, uh, to deal with the, um, so, you know, with the issue of Sauron not detecting or sensing the presence of the ring. Hmm. Um, but anyway, um, yeah, Marielle says maybe the necromancer does notice the ring and begins to search for it, but remains in Mirkwood when Bilbo moves on. This might set up the Gollum capture. Yeah, I mean, we still got the 60-year gap to deal with. Um, but, uh, 
Um, but yeah, you know, one wonders, uh, you know, are, it, we've seen lots of collapsing of time frames <laughs> by Jackson, so uh, I've actually been kind of wondering about this. Um, uh, that is, are they going to play, are they going to, how carefully are they going to insulate the end of the film? so that it really is going to be the comfortably 60 years are going to pass, nothing is going to happen, um, or are there going to be any... Um, basically, how much are they going to play with the continuity between the Lord of the Rings Well, we have films? to have Martin Freeman turn into Ian Holm, so there has to be some time go by, right? Yeah, well, no, time is going to pass, but again, <laughs> like, how much is going to... I mean, you think about... They've already done this a little bit with Gandalf, you know, with Gandalf sort of knowing a little bit more about what's going on than it seems like he does at the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring film. Um, but anyway, yes, I, but I will be, I'll be interested to see, and this, you know, Dave, there's a question you and I asked a long time ago, mm-hmm. was how, how scrupulously are they going to maintain um, yeah. Consistency between the Lord of the Rings films and the Hobbit films when it's in conflict with the Hobbit story, right? Yeah, and and we, and I think I recall we we've always come down on sort of the side of like that they will always elect for what makes a better movie now than what what gives us yes. you know consistency and continuity. Still, though, I I think in terms of the time stuff, I don't know what they can really get away with. Um, so we know they they've already committed themselves to to there being lots of time passing. It seems like if they if they really wanted to fiddle with events between the two films, what they should have done is try to try to modify the amount of time that passed between them, sort of you know play fast and loose with Bilbo's age or something like that. Um, and they didn't do that, so it just seems like you know. I don't. I think it would be kind of ridiculous. It's one thing. So we, I remember we were talking about this in the context of um, characters, uh, people like Saruman or whatever, and we were saying that like um, I don't remember exactly what what it was we were talking about with respect to Saruman, but it was just the idea that maybe they wouldn't want to give away or they wouldn't want to wouldn't want to sort of give away um, Saruman's villain, future villainy too much. Cause, cause Gandalf and everybody else is taken by surprise in that film. Gandalf right, shows up right. and it's like, Hey, Saruman, how's it going? Oh no, you're a bad guy. And we didn't want, <laughs> let me tell you all about the hiding place of the one ring. Yeah. yeah. We, we didn't want, um, we didn't, we, we wondered whether they might have hints that Gandalf suspected or someone else suspected and, and whether that would be inconsistent with the film. So, and we've sort of said that like at the end of the day, if it makes a better story, that's what they'll do. Um, but I think that here it it just would be it'd be so uh, it'd be such a monumental change that it would just seem it would defy common sense and reason and people would wouldn't accept it. I, I don't I don't think they've given themselves much room. I think I think people's minds are are going to rebel at the idea of of the ring passing so close to the necromancer, i.e. Sauron. Um, yeah. without him having any idea what's going on. But I, th- I think um, that there's ways to mitigate that. Um, they can, they, maybe he's just so busy um, dealing with uh, the, the White Council and the Battle of Dol right. Dolder and all that he doesn't notice. Maybe, uh, you know, another thing, I personally think one way that you can hand- do this is don't make it too obvious that it's Sauron until... Till it's essentially too late, you know what I mean? Like, if they come right out at the beginning of this film and say, 
hey, that yeah, that guy is actually Sauron, you know. And then we see the ring, you know, going right under his nose, and he misses that. Then uh, fans fans of the films yes. who haven't read the books will will think that's ridiculous. But if you don't don't do the he's Sauron reveal until later, they kind of might forget. Right. <laughs> I could just see Pete Rizzard was saying, you know, I was like, do you feel something? You know, I have an itch. I haven't had an itch in that spot for a long time. I wonder what that is. I'm sure um, it's nothing. Yeah, I'm sure yeah, it's nothing. Exactly. Well, you know, you're right, actually. Well, one thing they could do, I suppose, is, well, first of all, we are assuming, and I do think correctly, that he's going to put the ring on somewhere around the spider fight and be invisible going into the Alpine's Hall, right? I think we're all agreed on that, correct? That he's going to put the ring on and he's going to be invisible in, in, in Mirkwoods. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I you know that's one of the ones. Well, we're you know we're assuming this, but I do think we're correct in assuming that. One thing he could do is is actually stage the Battle of Dougaldur to be kind of it at the same time as Bilbo messing with the ring at that point. It's still kind of a little bit of a far fetched thing, but if Sauron's attention is elsewhere. Uh, trying to fight off or trying to get away while you know get have his minions keep the the good guys at bay while he's running off he could miss it i suppose so if the two are concurrent in other words right right yeah yeah i mean it is yeah i mean i agree with dave it's going to depend a lot upon how sauron is tra- i mean first of all like, let's, you know let's keep in mind we haven't gotten any kind of meanwhile in Dol Guldur scene in film <laughs> one at all. That is like we haven't been given anything from Sauron's point of view. And Dave, you know, thinking about your, you know, I, I like what you were saying about mitigating that effect. You know, the uh, one way that Peter Jackson could have to mitigate the effect is never really show us Sauron at all. I mean, you know, if 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 it's just a shadowy menace which is only revealed at the end. That is at the end of the White Council plot when Gandalf and Goadriel and Radagast get there. Um, then, uh, you know, uh, basically the two plots remain distant enough. That's what I was, one of the things that I was sort of suggesting when I was saying the, the, keeping the two different arenas of action really mm-hmm. separate. Um, then, especially with the very plastic idea of distance and time that is given to us in these films, um, there's no reason to think that the two of them are necessarily that close. And it could just be seen by viewers as a kind of irony that Sauron, you know, we're discovering this person who turns out to be Sauron and Bilbo is discovering the ring and they're not that far away. But, uh, you know, isn't it ironic to think that Sauron doesn't realize that the ring is right there rather than people saying, like, why doesn't Sauron realize? So I do think that that could that could be mitigated that way, and he could avoid the whole thing. Though it still gets back to, you know, that, you know, Dave, the riddle that you and I suggested way back after the, after the CinemaCon thing last year, when the whole concept of the Tomb of the Nazgul was first revealed, mm-hmm. um, the question of what are the Nazgul going to be doing in this film, you know, in these films, and. Uh, you know, we still don't have any kind of a clear answer to that. The only thing we got in film one was that cameo from probably the Witch King, um, which suggests that at least one of the Nazgul is in some way and for some reason hanging out at Dol Guldur, um, but that doesn't necessarily answer our question or at least provide a, a full answer to the question. Um, and maybe they're going to be 
setting out to do one of the other things we were suggesting before. So, so we'll see. I'm still not real. You know, I would still be a little bit surprised if we end up getting a major pursuit of yeah. the ring subplot. Um, I don't think it's impossible. I don't think it's impossible to make it happen. But I don't. But I would kind of be surprised if it does happen. Well, in a in a kind of a related question, I'm wondering how often. Um, Bilbo will actually use the ring in film two. Um, for example, I mean, one of the things that I was thinking of was when we uh, we got to see um, a couple of weeks ago, I guess it was a figurine, I think it's at a wetter workshop, of Bilbo hanging onto a barrel. You know, he's obviously in the river and he's hanging onto a barrel. Well, he's definitely not wearing the ring, I mean, as far as we know. I mean, right. otherwise there would just be a barrel on the figurine. So, um, you know, I'm just... Trying to, I've been trying to think, you know, how often will he use it? I mean, will he, you know, he, will he do like he does in the book and like keep it on the whole time he's in the Elven King's, you know, halls? Uh, if so, then I suppose he's going to have to reveal, you know, the ring to the dwarves at that point. Um, will he use it once they get to Lake Town? I, you know, I that's I don't even know that we can necessarily speculate, but I just am wondering how many times he's going to use it or how how long he'll keep it on. Yep, I agree. My prediction there would be he would use it about as frequently, but keep it on much much less. Much less. Okay. Yeah. I mean, we've already seen, as you said, we've already seen two examples of him being visible. Three right. examples in the Three. trailer alone. Right. Places when he is visible when in the book he's invisible. That is right. when he's standing there and the spider's climbing up the tree behind him, when he is on the barrel, or next mm-hmm. to the barrel, and when he's in front of Smaug, most importantly. Um, right. So... <laughs> So we've got three, to, and but that's actually kind of what I would certainly expect. The ring vision effect is, you know, kind of interesting and all, but it is not. Um, it's not like he's going to want to shoot thirty percent of this film in ring vision. You know, I mean, uh, that would like induce seizures or something. Uh, you know, seasickness. I don't know, but um, uh, anyway, it's it's uh, that's clearly not going to happen. So I imagine he is going to become invisible at, you know, about, again, about as often. I mean, he's going to have to become invisible with the spiders at some point. He's going to have right. to become invisible to get into the Elven King's Halls, presumably. Um, but he's, uh, but he, he's going to become invisible, presumably at some point, with Smaug. But he's not necessarily going to be... Um, Invisible the whole time. He certainly doesn't have to be right. invisible the whole time in the Elven King's halls. I mean, he can just, you know, get to somewhere private and hang out. You know, in a, you know, a, some some storage room somewhere. You know, um, somewhere where he's hidden. Um, so basically, I would expect to see him doing a lot of sneaking around in those places. Um, visibly sneaking around. Visibly sneaking around. Yeah. Um, yeah. And only being invisible at certain key and crucial times. But you see, then that brings me back to the whole personality of the ring question. Mm-hmm. Um, because it it makes those particular moments more significant. Um, when he's just wearing the ring for weeks on end, in a sense, the more he wears it, the less of a big deal the ring is. But when there are those sort of specific transactions, you know, those those specific, okay... I am going to draw upon the power of the ring here to save me, um, you know, or to enable me to do something, then it, it, it invests that with some more significance, especially when we're thinking, when we are knowing, when all of the viewers are knowing that this thing that he's putting on is an evil artifact, which is going to take control over him. 
Um, so, you know, there's a way in which his use of the ring could also take on using some of the sort of the analogy, um, th- some of the kind of metaphorical language that the first film used visually. Um, every time he used the ring could become like, you know, an, a very early stage addict taking another hit. Um, you know, a, that, that kind of effect of the ring. As I said, that, that's, that, that was explicitly how Peter Jackson talked about it. Right, mm-hmm. right, right. And I think it's not a, an inappropriate way to look at the ring, actually, uh, and the way in which it corrupts. I mean, it's, it's very logical that a modern filmmaker would use something like drug addiction as a kind of a metaphor for the kind of corruptive influence of the ring that makes sense to me. Um, so I wonder, you know, what kind of, you know, is that going to be, you know, I, I mentioned before about Bilbo having to resist temptations. Well, temptations to what exactly? Temptations simply to conceal it. Temptations to use it. Temptations to use it to do bad things. Um, there are any number of these kinds of things that, you know, could happen, that, 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 that could be done. Um, we also have the possibility or probability of the ring itself uh, compelling him, you know, not just not just his own addiction, but also like we saw in the in, with Frodo, you know, the, there are scenes where, you know, it's obvious that the ring is, is you know, put me on, put me on, put me on. Right. So we may see that kind of as a force as well in, in The Hobbit. Yeah. I don't know why the ring yeah. would necessarily, in terms of the storyline, but... Well, I mean, presumably, um, you know, I mean, okay, even if the Nazgul aren't searching for it, um, orcs are searching for them, we know. I mean, you That's know, true. Azog and his boys are nearby, so. Um, like a, like a, it turns on a beacon when he puts the ring on, right? <laughs> That's like, a, yeah. like an e-perb. <laughs> exactly, yeah, it's like a tracking thing. Yeah, who knows? Right. That certainly could be possible. Um yeah. Oh, Murray asks it. Murray Smith asks a really interesting question. Do I think Peter Jackson will have the elves sense the presence of something in its halls when Bilbo wears it? Will they be aware of the presence of some magic or evil? That's a really interesting question. The, 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 there'll be scenes where Bilbo Invisible will be walking by a group of elves, and the elves will kind of just sort of look around like, what was that? It'll be like the way Snape reacted when yes. uh, Harry was the cloak over him. Right? Yeah, how, yeah, exactly. How Snape always seemed to have this, just this like Potter sneaking around again. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, Terry all feeling like she's being watched. Yeah, it's possible. <laughs> it's possible. Uh, yeah, I'm going to. Uh, I'm going to uh, uh, avoid the the. Uh, see me potential of that remark that you just made Trish. but anyway uh i yes i i, I i'm gonna go with no um i'm not sure but it, it depends a lot on how they play the elves i mean how especially thranduil um that is you know in the books thranduil and the wood elves are clearly you know less powerful less magical to use that you know very fraught word in Tolkien's world um, than, you know, Galadriel, uh, for instance, um, or Elrond. So, um... But Legolas is portrayed in the movies as having like, you know, sort of superhuman abilities, senses kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. 
I mean, if it's sort of like an overall sense of vigilance, but not necessarily what um, what I think Murray was, at least how I took Murray's question, was that, you know, like this, like, there is some evil stirring in my land, you know, kind of sense. I would not be surprised to see if Randuel not have that. Um, and that somebody could use the ring right around him, and he's like, has no idea that the ring of power is there in his house. Um, I could imagine that that I could easily imagine um, that even an invisible uh, hobbit sneaking around uh, elven guards that elven guards would have some, you know, wariness or suspicion that something was around wouldn't be surprising. Um, but, Actually, it could uh, be another way that we see a difference between father and son, where maybe Legolas is shown as having some kind of weird feeling, something's, you know, he's like he keeps looking around or something, where Thranduil doesn't sense anything. I mean, that's another possibility, as we see Legolas being more sensitive to sort of external factors than his father. Yes. Yes. Yep. Yep. I, I could see that. I could see that as a possibility. Um, I'm with you, Corey. I don't. I don't think the. I. I'm just. I'm of the opinion that that these are all things that will distract from the main story of the film. Mm-hmm. They're things. Mm-hmm. Th- these are things that sort of. Uh, I think, and I think the reason the reason that Tolkien fans like to talk about these sorts of things and suggest these sorts of things is that they are interesting world building type stuff. Like it makes the world right. richer. Mm-hmm. Makes things more interesting. For a film, though, it's just going to make it like, you know, it's just a constant yeah. distraction. I, I really don't think that Peter Jackson's going to want to distract us with the ring constantly because I, I I just, I feel like that will detract from the story that he, that, that I expect he's trying to tell. I, for, I don't know. For all I know, we're, we're in for really what I would consider to be nasty surprise that he's going to change the story and make it all about the ring and Sauron. But I don't think so. He seems pretty yeah. dedicated to telling the core Hobbit story. And I just think too much ring is going to distract from that. You know, like I, I think that, that, that fans of the book will be able to set it aside because we, 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 we have practice. We've read, we've read the Hobbit, you know, how many hundreds of times each of us probably, um, uh, knowing full and well, like, Hey, that's the Ring of Power. Well, that's not what this book's about. I'm gonna just put right. it in the back of my mind. Right. So we have practice, but I think your your casual moviegoer, if constantly reminded that, by the way, this is the Ring, you know, just in case you hadn't forgot, like they're just there's gonna come a point where we're gonna be like, I, I don't understand why I'm in Lake Town worrying about this dragon when when we've got the Ring and Sauron and all that. And if they play into that too much, if they have Sauron realizing it's the Ring and sending people after them, or or you know. Bilbo getting the sense that something's wrong, or Gandalf, like that. That to me is like the the, the the sort of the biggest danger here. That like, you don't want too much funny stuff to go on with the ring, because Gandalf's not an idiot. Like you know, like Gandalf might start to he in the book even he already suspects that there's something really funky going on with the ring, and and it, and and. You, when you're reading those early chapters of the Fellowship of the Ring, where Gandalf's sort of recounting kind of his decision-making process over the last, you know, number of decades, where he decided to do nothing, despite the fact that it seems fairly obvious that this, there's, that this ring is, you know, like as he points out, like when you start going through the logic of it, like, well, it's obviously not. It, it it's a great ring because it has the invisibility thing, but it doesn't have a jewel like all of the rest of them do. What does that leave? And, and and it's and, you know he, and it, and it there's the suggestion that he didn't actually know that much ring lore and so that he right. 
he only figured these things out with 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 a, a lot of research and many trips to Minas Tirith and and you know digging back through his memory to discussions in the White Council, and that there's also the thing you know he says on multiple occasions that. I decided, you know, things seemed okay, so I didn't want to meddle too much, so I just kind of left Bobo alone and all that. And and uh, again, as a as someone who's read the book multiple times, you just kind of accept that. But you realize that that, that what's really going on, I, I guess, is Tolkien's doing some some basically some retconning there, just providing us an explanation for why so much time has passed and why Gandalf has done nothing. Despite the right. fact that Gandalf has proven himself smart and resourceful and the kind of person who probably really should have figured this out pretty quickly and, and would have done something about it really quickly. So instead we get this this kind of very implausible explanation. Um, so but I think in the well, world. Well, I mean, of... I, I can I can I can kind of justify a little bit of that in the sense, at least in Tolkien, in the in Tolkien's version of the story, because Saruman, I mean, Gandalf, according to Tolkien, had no reason to suspect Saruman of anything. And Saruman, for like all the times that the White Council met, along with his, you know, influential voice, was saying that he believed that the ring had been washed down the river out into the sea centuries ago and that it wasn't any longer in Middle Earth. And so there really wasn't any reason for Gandalf, you know, Gandalf, you know, definitely thinks there's something going on with this ring, but he, it never occurs to him. I mean, it doesn't occur to him for a long time that it could even be the one ring no, I I, because I, of Saruman's Yeah, no, I agree. I, I agree with that to an extent. Although I think, you know, I think you can put Gandalf in the camp of people who never really believe that, you know, never. When Saruman said like, eh, it's in the ocean, don't worry about it. Yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah, Gandalf was the guy that was always like, ah. Sorry. <laughs> Strong reaction to that statement there. Yes, <clears throat> that's pretty um, good. Pretty good cue there. I know. And uh, but I, anyway, I think in the film though that w- this would be an even bigger problem. Like I, I just I think that people would just it would just I can just imagine like the posts on the internet now from like the the people that are like you know super excited about the films but haven't really read the books yet just saying like you know what the heck is wrong with Gandalf? It's the ring. How do you not know this, you idiot? So yes. I personally think that they want to, that they're going to want to be very um, uh, muted in their use and depiction of the ring. I think that that Bilbo's reveal to the other characters will need to, need to be done in such a way as to not arouse any suspicion, particularly in Gandalf. I mean, maybe they'll even elect to do it at a time when Gandalf's not around, so that he doesn't have an opportunity to say, hey, "Let me see that. I'd like to take a closer look at this ring. I'm really curious." Right. 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 Yes. Yes. No, I agree. We should, we should segue into this is, is that is an excellent segue into our riddle, which, which we should start discussing in more concrete terms. <clears throat> so let me uh, spell out the terms of that riddle and then we can carry on discussing it. Um, the question is, as I mentioned before, um, how, uh, when and how is uh, Bilbo going to reveal, is Bilbo's possession of the ring going to be revealed to his friends? Um, and our <clears throat> Our, our options are A, the book answer. He voluntarily, he voluntarily reveals it before the barrel escape. So we're taking basically the barrel escape as the before and after. Is it going to be much later? So, you know, post Merkwood or is it still going to be in Merkwood? He voluntarily reveals it before the barrel escape. B is it's revealed against his will before the barrel escape. So it's discovered somehow. He doesn't tell them about it, but it's, it's somehow discovered and he doesn't want it discovered. C, he voluntarily reveals it after the barrel escape. D, it's revealed against his will after the barrel escape. Or E, Bilbo does not reveal the ring at all in The Hobbit's Desolation of Smaug. 
So the ring is still a secret at the end of the film, is option E. So those are our options. And so um, I agree. <clears throat> Certainly, I think any of them... Well, in the book, of course, he reveals it during their escape from the spiders. Um, and so that is already, you know, Dave, as you were saying, safely after Gandalf is away. Um, but uh, but it will be interesting to see. And, and of course, it become, it's a part of the story that is their, their acknowledgement, their recognition of his invisibility ring is a part of the escape plan. Remember, this is, you know, when Thorin is saying, uh, if, you know, Mr. Invisible Baggins, uh, you know, can't come up with a with a solution. So, <clears throat> you know, the dwarves are already thinking of him as Mr. Invisible Baggins by the time they're in prison. Um, so their knowledge that Bilbo can become invisible and their reliance upon that um, is part of the whole why they're going to sit around and wait for Bilbo to come up with something to get them out. Um, but uh, we wanted to put the uh, we wanted to put the 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 dividing point later at the end of Mirkwood because the question is you know it, there are there are several possibilities you know there's the spider sequence there's the elf sequence there's the lake town sequence and there's the lonely mountain and the dragon sequence um, and conceivably. Yeah, I think it's quite possible that Peter Jackson could push off the revelation of the ring past the spiders and to one of those later occasions. And so we wanted to basically place our dividing point in the middle of those. <clears throat> so we've got the Mirkwood stuff and the Lake Town and the Mountain stuff on the other side. Um, but again, the other the other major bill will ever going to tell them, or is it just going to be discovered? Now, Yana has pointed out the very sensible thing that, uh, of course, in the book, it's not really fully on purpose. He doesn't really want to tell them about it, but he's sort of forced to by circumstances. Yes, but he still does tell them. When I talk about being revealed against his will, I mean like somebody sees him or something. Um, not like circumstances bring things around where he feels like he really kind of has to and so does. He's still making a choice to review it then. Um, and there's a big difference there between him sort of making a grudging decision to reveal the ring and uh, his being caught using the ring. And that's really the distinction that, uh, that, that we're talking about there. Because see, that I could, I, I could easily imagine them going there. I could easily imagine them going there as a way to indicate um, that that sort of possessiveness, you know, that Bilbo never tells anybody, but he's eventually caught, and maybe with a sort of a guilty air, um, you know, maybe in a Gollum-esque pose, you know, uh, that he that he strikes when he's discovered, and now has to has to you know explain what he's doing and doesn't really want to. Um, you know, I think that that's that I, I could easily see that happening, and I could see that as a way that Peter Jackson takes to build up that whole corruptive influence of the ring. Right. Hmm. I this is one of those reels that uh, that I don't immediately have a uh, uh, preferred answer. <clears throat> I kind of incline towards a later revelation. Um, I the spiders, that's pretty early. Uh, mm -hmm. In the, I mean, in the second film, that's going to be pretty early. Um, I mean, we have Bjorn and then the spiders, so. 
they're probably going to get to spiders within the first hour of the film. Um, and do you think, what do you think the chances are that he won't reveal it in the second film? I think they're pretty good, actually. I could easily imagine the ring being secret. In fact, I could easily imagine the ring never being revealed. Um, in fact, that would be one way to mitigate, Dave, exactly what you were saying about the, you know, Gandalf discovering it. Like, okay, so say it's not revealed until after Gandalf departs. Well, still after the Battle of Five Armies, there's still lots of opportunity for Gandalf to say, hey, let me check that thing out. Um, however, if if we end the third Hobbit film with Bilbo still holding the ring in secrecy and Gandalf suspicious um, and determined to find out more about this and not really to let this rest, that actually is an okay setup for what happens later on. In some ways it makes more sense than if things played out exactly as they do in the book. See, I, I'm, a, I'm of that. I was going to say that before um, you know, I was called away was um, I do think that there's you know, especially listening to Corey talk earlier, good good reason for not having the reveal until the f third film. I mean, part of what you were saying earlier, Dave, too, about the fact that you don't want to take the story away from the main story. You don't want to focus on the ring. Well, one great way to do that is you don't have the reveal in, in film, too. And then, like you said, maybe not at all. I mean, that's that's feasible, I suppose. I would or, the very, or toward the very, very, very end, I suppose, you'd have to do. Cause That's an interesting suggestion. I, the more I think about that, the more that the notion appeals to me of not revealing it all. I, I really like the idea of the of the, um, of the the ominous Bilbo in the ring type ending. Um, I think that's kind of a neat idea. And and if he doesn't reveal it, that only heightens that. It, it, it gives a suggestion that there's something secretive and furtive about his possession of the ring, that he doesn't want to um, share it with other people. Yeah, yeah. By the way, I would say, uh, you know, Trish, think of what you were just saying. If it's not revealed by the end of the second film, I don't think it's going to be revealed, unless it's like in you know like an epilogue with Gandalf or something you know if it's if it's part of the cause presumably there will be another protracted denouement sequence at the end of the third Hobbit film like there was at the end of the Return of the King and for the same reason that we've got to travel back right mm -hmm. so um, I could see Gandalf figuring something out or confronting him about it or something they're at the very tail end. So Battle of Five Armies is over. All of the plot lines are resolved. Um, that's all settled. And then Gandalf confronts him about the ring as explicitly a kind of you know transition into the Lord of the Rings films that will come later. Um, that I could easily see. Um, but... Um, I, but barring that, um, if it's not revealed in film two, I can't see it being revealed like leading up to the battle of five armies or something. I mean, I think if it's not revealed even with the dragon, you know, um, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, you know, Yana said, well, gosh, how could they, how could he explain breaking them out without the ring reveal? But like in the, in the dungeons, but um, I, I think it's conceivable that I think Bilbo could just keep telling him that he has these awesome burglar skills and just keep keeping the ring secret like you say, until an epilogue moment where they're back in the Shire, sitting around the fire, smoking pipes, and Bilbo looks at Gandalf kind of with a guilty look and says, well, I do have to admit something. 
you know, it wasn't really awesome burglar skills. I had this ring. You know, and that could be kind of how the movie sort of toward the end of the last movie could be. Like you say, it sets it up for the next next film, next uh, trilogy. Right. We could end the film just like we end the book with Gandalf and Bilbo having tea and smoking pipes in Bag End. It's just the conversation would be much more tense. That's right. <laughs> or, and, and Balin could be there too, right? Balin right. could be with yeah. just like in the book. <laughs> yeah. And the, the two of them could be like coming to Bag End to stage an intervention with Bilbo. You know, like, we think there's something you've not been telling us. It's time to come clean. Yeah, I mean, it's conceivable we could do that, in which case, you're right. I mean, I, I, I'm tending to agree with this no reveal during film two as well, which is very revolutionary, and I'm still trying to get my head around it. But in Jackson's version of Middle Earth, that makes sense, I think. Yeah, I mean, I kind of, I kind of like it. Um, I mean, the one question, one question that... that uh, um, that uh, Stephen and Yana were both suggesting was how about the, you know, how do they manage the escape from the Elven King's halls without it? Because that's when Mr. Invisible Baggins is really necessary. Well, first of all, keep in mind that, you know, as we say, we know he is visible during the barrel sequence. So, you know, his invisibility during that, which is, of course, an important feature in the book, is not present. Um, his, I don't think it's actually necessary. Bilbo is visible during almost the whole time. I mean, if you think about how he actually manages it, he's invisible when he steals the keys. Um, but, you know, he didn't even actually have to be. Um, he's invisible because they're asleep. He's invisible when he's taking the keys to the dwarves, but he's not invisible when he's walking the dwarves from the cells back to the barrels because the dwarves aren't invisible. So actually, it the way it works in the book, the invisibility is not really necessary, and I think actually that that's an that's an interesting thing. That's an important thing. Um, there's a kind of irony there, right? Because the reason he was reluctant to in the book now, the reason he was reluctant to reveal the ring to the dwarves in the first place is that he wanted to build up more reputation as a burglar, and when he does reveal the ring. They think it's rather a great thing, and they don't think less of him for it. They think it's pretty awesome that he has an invisibility ring. But you'll notice that they begin to assume that it's his invisibility that's going to enable him to, 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 uh, to break them out. But in fact, the way that he actually breaks them out has almost nothing to do with invisibility. Um, so in fact, he manages to break them out in a way that he apart from the fact that he couldn't have gotten into the Elven King's Halls in the first place. Um, but, but the actual breakout itself doesn't require invisibility. It just requires luck and opportunity and, you know, stealth and, uh, and uh, you know, decisive action on Bilbo's part. So there's actually, I think, a kind of irony that when the ring is actually revealed, um, uh, he, he does, in fact, manage, manage to free them largely without the ring. And on screen... You know, sort of imagining how what percentage of that whole sequence would need to be in ring vision? Very little, maybe none, even. Um, once he's in there, you could do the entire escape scene without the ring. Um, so, so I don't think that that's. Um, again, he's going to use the ring presumably to get into the Elven King's Hall and to escape attention at times when he's in there. But, uh, but you know, I do think. Um, I do think that we have um, some reason to... We can easily imagine stuff happening um, without 
the dwarves knowing about it. And he could just pretend like, yeah, man, I'm such a great burglar. I like broke into the Elven King's halls here. Nobody saw me. I'm awesome. You know, or at least like, allowing them to think that. Because he kind of did that, didn't he, at the end of the first film when they were like, he st- it was stuck up on him. I mean, didn't he? Didn't yeah. he kind of say something about that? Yeah. I'm getting the book and the film confused now. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. But yeah, I mean, he doesn't mention it then, you know. So yeah, they, he, they think that he just escaped the mountains without you know, by his own ingenuity and without any magical assistance. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Um, so, and it's certainly not needed in Lake Town. Um, so, yeah, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's certainly possible that he could keep the reveal away. I don't know. Dave, are you any closer to an answer? No. <laughs> I'm I'm of two minds. There's uh, there's part of me that really likes the idea of him not revealing it, and then there's part of me that thinks that that there there have been there have been so many cases where we predicted that um uh where we predicted that they that they would depart from the books, uh, and they don't. And so there's right. part of me that thinks like that we should just you know that that. That this always the simplest thing for the filmmakers to do is to do what was already in the book. Like it requires a requires effort and creativity to uh, to come up with new ideas. And so, like if if there aren't if there isn't a huge flaw or a reason not to do what's in the book, then then they then I, I think you know consistently they do do what's in the book unless there's a really good reason not to do it from their standpoint at least. I don't yeah, know. yeah. I guess I guess this is not that it's not that complicated to not have him reveal the ring. That doesn't add like they don't have to invent a scene for that or anything. So maybe. Right. <laughs> right. right. It doesn't. It doesn't. And it, um, it may actually be more complicated for him to reveal the ring. That's true. Um, well, especially yeah. since he's since Jackson has developed the dwarves' character, you know, personality so much. You know, you could see the dwarves getting really into, well, use the ring, use. You know what I mean? It's like they'd want to engage with the ring more if they knew about it. it seems it's possible. So, and maybe not it's easier that, for not to reveal. Another change, which would, if you think of the actual circumstances of the ring reveal in the book, and that is, they're escaping the spiders. The dwarves are really groggy and just staggering around, and they're all totally unarmed anyway, and trying to beat off the spiders with sticks and rocks that they pick up off the ground. And uh, Bilbo has to reveal the ring because he's going to become invisible to draw the spiders away um, to, uh, to chase after him to enable the dwarves to escape. Because, again... They need this because they are not entirely helpless. You know, Balin is leading an attack, so they are attacking. But, but again, they're really weak, and they need help, and so they need this distraction from. Um, they need this distraction from Bilbo. That's harder to, for me to imagine in um, the film, because the fact is, yeah. the dwarves are now all like heavily armed you know, ninja warriors. So uh, we know, we've got to know, right, that the, the, the retreat from the spiders is going to be an action sequence with dwarves, you know, uh, knocking spiders all over the place, right? Probably weak and wobbly, practically helpless dwarves whom Bilbo has to single-handedly, es- uh, you know, help to escape. That's probably not going to be what happens. 
So even imagine, imagining the reveal, it could still happen in that moment, but imagining the re reveal happening in the same way and for the same reasons as in the book is actually difficult for me. Mm -hmm. hmm. Anybody, is anybody ready to commit to an answer? And the three of us are really putting this off. No, yeah, I, know, I know, we really are. Kate, Kate, Kate wants to know, what if only one dwarf knows? Like Balin or Bofur. Oh, That's God. fine. That counts. That counts. That counts. Okay. That counts as that counts as a reveal, right? Okay. It counts. Yeah, I could see, you know, uh, especially thinking of you know the one-on-one -on -one conversation Bilbo has with Bofur at the mouth of the cave in the Misty Mountains. One could imagine, you know, right, like him taking Bofur into his confidence or Balin into right. his confidence. That's true. Um, and. Not not anybody else, and and maybe All that right. person, and maybe that person, sort of, you know, smiling understandingly and saying, you know, well, you know, nobody else needs to know. Like you can keep it. Right. 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 But that would now kind you of know the reveal. other the other uh, parameter in the riddle too is the voluntarily versus you know having it revealed against his will. In other words, whether he voluntarily reveals it or he gets caught out, that's another interesting one as well, which is you know. He voluntarily reveals it in the book, right? Right. Yes. Voluntarily, though, again, his hand is sort of forced. Um, but, uh, but, but, yeah. I mean, he still does choose. I don't um, know. I don't know. My thinking is it either has to be revealed before the barrel escape or not revealed at all. And I'm I'm actually my meter is going toward not revealed at all for for all the very good reasons that both of you have cited, as far as the direction and the trajectory that film two needs to take, that the you know the ring is going to be a character but a minor character. Jackson's not going to want to you know play it up a lot. So I'm thinking no reveal. Why do you? Why I don't do you know think that I'm going on record be, yet. Why do you think it has to be revealed before the barrel escape? Um, because it'll be while they're in the dungeons, you know, it, it would, it would be, I'm thinking it would be in the King's Hall. Like, do we, you know, are we the, rejecting the notion, the dungeons, like, are we, are we rejecting the idea that it will be revealed at the, the, during the co conflict with the spiders? Well, that would be, that would qualify as before the barrel yeah. escape. But you're saying you yeah, think yeah. it has to be in the Elven King's Hall, so you don't think you. Don't well, think I'm thinking by the Elven King's Hall. Yeah. By oh, the King, oh, yeah. Oh, by, oh, either, yeah, yeah. Either before or at, you know, before yeah. the barrel escape happens. I see what so you're, either I with see the what spiders you're or in the Elven King's Hall. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. it's interesting because I, I see him doing it. I kind of agree. I was thinking through like, you know, it seems very difficult for him to not reveal it during the course of the spider battle, or and during the course of the stay in the Elven King's Hall. Um, you know, like, how would they not notice him using it, except for the fact that, as we've previously discussed, um, we they really don't want to probably spend a whole lot of on-screen time in ring vision, so it's entirely possible he won't use it. Or he'll use it very minimally in ways that, that, that actually people wouldn't notice. So, man. <laughs> I, I expect that that scene we saw in the trailer with him behind the tree trunk and the spider on the other side is yeah. literally seconds before he puts the ring on. I'll bet he puts the ring on right right at that, right after that scene that we saw in the trailer. Now, whether he keeps it on for very long, you're right, is another yeah, topic. Yeah, maybe he's doing subject. some kind of like, thing where he, like, he, he slips it on behind the tree and runs out and kills the spiders right. and then runs behind another tree and then takes it off and runs out. And <laughs> they're like, wow, Bilbo's every... How is he doing this? I'm just that fast, guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then
and then he definitely i i believe he definitely has to have it on for the march to the elven king's hall because i mean that i can't see how that can't you know how else is he going to get in um but you know the thing about kate's question about revealed to another dwarf that does really oh hush that does really open it up in the sense of i mean it could be on bard's boat you know after the barrel escape and beaufort goes hey by the way you know what is the deal? You know, how are you really that talented? And he's like, no, no, shh, 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 I have this ring. I mean, <laughs> it, that really opens it up. You know what I mean? It's, then it's like it could happen after the barrel escape. Yeah, it could be. Uh, yeah, yeah, that he's pressed to review it by the dwarves following, um, uh, following the 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 whole sequence. So it could be basically related to the Elven King escape, but not happen during that moment. Oh my God! We're not getting anywhere. (laughs) Oh gosh! Going around and around. See, she's upset too. Golly. Here's my. Okay, I'm going thinking of the uh, thinking of the fundamental questions you know that lead to our um, that lead to our quadrant here. I think the ring. If 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 the ring is revealed, I think it's going to be revealed voluntarily. Um, I can imagine the involuntary reveal, him being caught out, um, because I could imagine Peter Jackson using that as a way to show the, you know, the ring beginning to get some kind of hold over Bilbo, and that that I could see happening. But I don't think that's what's going to happen. I think that if it does happen, he's going to tell them about it. Um, I also don't think it's going to happen post-barrel sequence. Mostly because I don't see as much reason to have the ring be an issue. Obviously, it's going to be an issue with the dragon. The only distant shot that I can say I can't see it happening in Lake Town. Why would it? Unless it happens in conversation like that, retro, you know, retrospectively. However, in general, there's not any call for the ring in Lake Town. Um, there is call for the ring with the dragon. So unless, unless it happens like they're sitting around saying. How's anybody going to go down and face the dragon? And Bill is going to be like, well, okay, I have a magic ring. But I don't really think that's likely. I think that if it happens, if it happens, I think it's going to happen voluntarily, and I do think it's going to happen pre-barrel ride. So basically, I am uh, still torn that I've got it down to either A or E. Um, Good job. It's going to happen voluntarily pre-barrel ride, or it's not going to happen at all. But I still haven't made yes. my mind up. I'm following days. along right behind you, Corey. <laughs> I'm, I'm in the same boat. <laughs> oh, golly. Maybe we should just flip a coin. I'm going to go with E. I'm going to commit. Go with e? I'm going with E. I'm going to go with no reveal. I think it's going to be a secret. I think people might suspect. I think people might even maybe ask. But I think he's going to hide it. Yeah. I hate picking the same answers you. It's so uninteresting and uncontroversial, <laughs> but I do too. I and and my reason is like, I just like the idea of him not telling them and and the and them using that to be to 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 drive a an ominous ending. I just love that idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you I know, Steve, Stephen Benedetti and I were just talking. He's like, he's he said, you know, no revealed keeps Jackson's options really options really really open for further departures from the 1939 text, which I think makes it most interesting the most interesting option for us token nerds. And I said, yeah, it's also going to drive a huge amount of controversy among the really hardcore 
book nerds, which yeah. will drive ticket sales. <laughs> <laughs> so, so E, you know, is probably the most, you know, the most profitable option from the point of view of Warner Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, this yeah. is a good, I was, I was digging through some uh, One Ring forums and uh, the, somebody claims that we know for a fact that Legolas and company helped the dwarves escape from the spiders. I, I don't know. I, I don't want to. I don't know that. So, and I'm not taking this random person in this forum's word for it. But that is a good point. That if they do change the way that that the spider thing, um, I okay. I'm definitely. I feel confirmed in my answer because I think that's probably true. That they're changing. They're having the elves intervene. In which case, yes. Bilbo may have no reason to put the ring on or reveal that he right. has it. So, right. all right. I feel good now. Yeah, I, I do think that a, a, a letter of the law book answer is very unlikely. That I could just because for that reason, I don't think that the escape from the spiders is very likely to work out exactly as it does in the book. Yeah. Um now again our book answer, our A answer does embrace more than a a very strict book answer. Yep. Um but I buy into the uh, notion that that if he makes it past, if he can make it past the the spiders, it becomes that much easier to just not reveal it. Maybe he could need to reveal it in the Elven King's dungeon, but I don't think it's necessary. And then once, and I agree with you, Trish. Once you're once they've escaped through the, with the barrels, there is no reason to reveal it. Yeah. 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 Not really. So. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm going to go with E2, and assuming all three of us are going to do it, this is going to be one of those pivotal questions that could turn out with us being the, the low scorers again this year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's true. Statistically speaking, it's better for us to disagree because then we cover more options, and it's less likely that... Uh, well, you know, yeah, when we all uh, converge on one answer, you can, have a you can bet that it's wrong. Yeah, it's true. The odds of the answer we all agree on being correct is really low. Really low. True. Yeah, yeah. Well, what do people which, think? Which, Not many of the of the of the of our live listeners have uh, have committed yet either. Stephen boldly committed to A uh, long before uh, uh, we did. Um, uh, but uh, but yeah, I haven't seen uh, I haven't seen I haven't seen other people stepping out there yet. Okay, you come on, folks. A. Sam says E. We got a couple coming in here. Okay, okay, okay. Mary wants me to clarify the choices again. Okay, okay. So here it is. A is voluntarily revealed pre-barrel ride. B is involuntarily revealed pre-barrel ride. So he's just you know he's caught pre-barrel ride. C is voluntarily revealed post-barrel ride. And D is involuntarily revealed post-barrel ride. And E is never revealed. Okay. All right. Yes, and Kate, this only replies to, uh, applies it's to question movie question it only, right. Yeah, only applies to movie right. two. So if, if, the, if the, it's still not been revealed at the end of, of film two, then E is the correct answer, even if it does get revealed. Uh, in it's interesting. Three. Daniel Helen thinks that E is a safe bet. You know, Daniel, experience tells us that anything we agree on is anything but a safe bet. But, uh, okay. And and Neil brings up the point that we, you know, that, that defeated us in film one, which was that Jackson really has been surprisingly close to the story all along. So Neil's going with A. 
You know, that, that's sensible. In a lot of ways, I agree. You know, if there is a take-home message from the pattern of the riddles in yes. uh, in film one, it was, when in doubt, go with the book answer. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And I okay. consistently didn't, which is why I ended up with, you know, like three and a half or something like that. Yeah. 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 No, I think you had five and a half, Trish. I think you were I think oh, you I, better than that. <laughs> I think it was five and a half. Because <laughs> I think I had six, so I. I oh, that's right. I was like yeah. enough point behind you. <laughs> that's right. I, I remember that. Uh, thoroughly trampled me was there. It, was it Dave like six and a half or seven? Yeah. Something, <laughs> yeah, something like that. It's abysmal. No more than a half point or one point above uh, above above me. Um, okay. Yes. Yeah, so no, Stephen. Of... Stephen Conundra only are during the digest, so yeah. Laura and I will be rehashing this topic, and I'll bet you Laura probably deviates. She's really good about going her own road on, on the answers, so even though we've been unanimous, she may very well break out and do something else. Smart move, Laura. Smart move. Okay, well, we have, we have most people are doing, uh, are doing A or E. Uh, Carissa oh, has broken says- out and said B, which is cool. Uh, and Giselle says C. Oh, there we go. There we go. Cool. That is very interesting. So I, you know, and I think I, I there's no answer here that I think is, you know, really unlikely or impossible. John Lambert's going for A just because we all agree on E. Yeah, smart well, man. that's <laughs> smart. That's absolutely playing the odds right there. Okay. Well, very good. Well, so, I need um, to run. Uh, yeah, and uh, if we. I, I don't know if you guys need to book it, but if we have a little bit of time, I would love to get the uh, MythCon dump. Oh. Oh, sure. yeah, we should. Can I have, like, f- i got to go pretty soon, but, like. We, okay, can, 30 you know, seconds, if, us, if I can do that. Give us the highlights. I want to hear about Verlin. Um, actually, I'll, I'll, I'll enter, I'll segue. This is the perfect segue, and it's a Verlin Flieger story. Um, we were at lunch, and we were talking about various and sundry things, and I think the reason that Verlin brought this up was because I was, I was laughing about a Big Bang Theory uh, episode about where they found like a ring, one of the one ring props that oh, was, yeah. had been missing and they all fought over it. And Verlin sort of thought about it for a moment. She says, you know, this is something I can never figure out. She said, you know, I would have students come up to me and proudly show me that they had bought a copy of the one ring and it was hanging around their neck. And my reaction has always been, why would you want to own yes. a facsimile of the one ring? <laughs> yes. Yes. I remember I remember having that same reaction much more strongly when I first saw like people making their wedding rings with the one ring inscription on the inside <laughs> or on the outside and I'm like what are you doing like that's a terrible idea horrible I mean, yeah yeah <laughs> that's pretty funny so that's my segue into mythcon we uh July 12th through 15th uh, we had, uh, it was in um, the Kellogg uh, Conference Center at the uh, Michigan State University. I don't really know how many people were there, but it was, this is definitely sort of the, you know, it's a very big Tolkien-oriented conference, even though there's other topics. We had um, seven MythCon's, MythCon, MythGuard students pre- presented papers, and then we had several more as attendees. Um, I'm not going to go through all the list of papers because we um, 
we actually, Laura Burkholz, um, uh led a, uh, a Tolkien chat without the Tolkien professor. We gathered those of us together who were still there and talked about MythCon, and we'll be releasing that. So, uh, and it's short, <laughs> so so it's worth listening to. But there were some really good highlights. I will kind of highlight one of the ones that I thought was really interesting is Andrew Higgins, who's a who's a MythCon student and also a, a PhD student um, uh, of Dimitri Fimi's over in the UK, and he's studying uh, Tolkien's li- linguistics from the early years, like the late, the teens and the twenties was really interesting. It was a really interesting, um, uh, uh, talk. And it really underlined for me, the thing I'd like to to say listeners is to pay attention to the language. I mean, I said to Andy, you know, I know the Tolkien said that he did a language first and then built the story around it, but his talk really reminded me that, you know, I need to really pay more attention to the language um, that Tolkien created because it really reveals a lot and gives you a lot of background into how the story got formed. Um, Our own Verlin Flieger, uh, first of all, she made a presentation called How Do Forests Behave or Do They? And she spent time talking about the um, evolution of Old Man Willow and of Treebeard, who I did sort of recall, and I think, Corey, you might have mentioned this, but she reminded me that he originally was a giant and, yeah. and on Sauron's side, um, and so then evolved. And then she spent quite a bit of time on the horns, mainly around what the heck are they? We really don't have – she cited from the, from the you know – from the legendarium, but it's kind of like Tolkien wasn't really that specific about them. And she made the remark that anytime Tolkien, anytime there's an issue that Tolkien really hasn't resolved for himself, he puts it into Mary's dialogue. He puts it into Mary's mouth. <laughs> Mary's the one that introduces things that Tolkien's really not going to answer. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. And then Professor, yeah, I thought that was really interesting. And then Professor Flieger also won the Inkling Studies um, That's right. prize. Um, which she defeated our own Tolkien professor, but you know, hey, it was a tough. Hey, no, she had and, my and vote from the beginning. Um, for oh, her I Green was Suns and glad. Fairy book, it was really I good, think, and she got a yeah. standing ovation. Absolutely, no, I think she she has uh, she has deserved that award far more often than she has won it. So I was really glad. Uh, that she, when I was so honored to be named a finalist for, you know, for my book to be named a finalist for that, that was like my victory celebration. Um, and especially, you know, because I knew that uh, that Verlin's book, was, you know, had come out the same year, so I knew that she would be nominated too. And I was, I was really glad uh, for her. She is so deserving of that. She was really cute. She was, she was kind of like the old, you know, Oscar. Oh, I didn't have a speech prepared. I didn't expect to win. It was really cute. Which is but anyway, true, actually. It, I talked to her about it in advance, and I yeah, know she didn't expect she to didn't win. Expect. There were some, there were some really, really, really interesting talks. Just so many talks that were good. Um, and again, you know, we'll we'll cover some of those at the token chat, so I won't do it here. But um, next year, it's going to be at Wheaton College in Norton, Massachusetts, which hopefully then Corey will be able to make, since it's kind of in your neck of the woods. And definitely. I would definitely recommend anyone who can make it even if it's just for a day you know if you're at all interested in these are not dry scholastic academics nor presentations at all these are really interesting thought-provoking talks and i think really um as much for fans as for any kind of in any kind of scholarly pursuit so i highly recommend MythCon. it was it was really fun it was really nice for the MythGuard students because you know we we know each other well a lot of people asked us like how did you guys meet we're like well gosh you know like chris and laura lee and i who have presented at a couple of other conferences well gosh i guess well or no we did we actually didn't meet each other face to face until myth moot yeah <laughs> and right. we'd been students together for like a year but we were you know we had relationships established already so meeting each other face to face was sort of a you know cherry on top of the sunday and, and it was that way for all of us but it was really nice to get to meet folks in person and really hang out so that was another cool thing yeah is that okay really dave cool. did i do good that, that was great enough information okay good 
Yeah. No, I was so sorry to miss MythCon this year. I was really I, I was to too. Out there. But but yeah, no, it happened to be on the very weekend of my move, so I was downloading moving trucks during MythCon, so you, that was you, would have, you would have much preferred to be at MythCon than doing that. Oh, boy, yes. <laughs> In every possible way. Hopefully you're done been. for a while. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think probably. <laughs> no, this is, this is, yeah. My wife and I have both declared our intentions to die in the house that we are living <laughs> in right now. <laughs> we are never moving again. Uh, hopefully in the distant future. Yes, in the distant future. Whenever that happens, we're going to be buried in the backyard of this house. We are done moving. Yes. Yeah, Corey, Corey and I were talking on the phone last week. He was calling from the truck as they were moving, and he goes, I've got my sons and a corn snake and a hamster in the truck. And I'm like, oh, that could be an interesting trick. <laughs> That's right. That the hamster survived. <laughs> hamster survived. Oh, the hamster it's, can stick up for himself. Hamster, tough like Sebastian, right? Fights for himself. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, By the way, I would Corey... totally cast Harry in the role of Sebastian. Yeah, you know. <laughs> oh, by the way, Stephen Benedetti's asking a real quick question on on um, Verlin's talk. Do the Ents or the Huorns have any precedent in any literature or mythology that you know of? In fact, Douglas Anderson, the encyclopedic Douglas Anderson, raised his hand during Verlin's talk and actually cited a book, and I think it's called The Word of Terragor by a man named Guy Ridley, out of print, impossible to find. Andy and I immediately got on our pads and were trying to find it, couldn't find yeah. it. But he said that that the characters, they were like horns, and they had moots in this story. So he said he's going to have it reprinted. And so hopefully soon we'll see a, another, you know, this, this book come out. So I thought that was very interesting. That is so classic Douglas Anderson. Oh, my goodness. I know. I know. That is exactly what Douglas Anderson will do, is raise his hand and say, and he, well, actually, yes. Like, they are private characters in this enormously obscure fantasy story from the 1930s. <laughs> That like only four people alive today have ever read. Yes. Oh my it. God! He gave a keynote address on like you know, late nineteenth century, early twentieth century fairy stories, yeah. and you know from him being a guest lecturer in our courses, we always come away with this enormous list of reading material that he yes. gives us. You know, in his stories, he came up with yet another a whole new list. <laughs> you know, it's just like oh my God! I said to him, my ambition is to sit down with you with a with a recorder and just have you brain dumped. I mean, right. It's just like incredible. It he is. Says, well, you know, it's been, he says, I've been doing it for 30 years. I'm like, well, still, it's just amazing. Yeah, no, I don't know this. I, I don't think that anyone on planet Earth has read more fantasy works than Douglas Anderson. I mean, and Stephen, to answer your question, would Tolkien have known this? Douglas Anderson said there's no absolute, you know, um, evidence that Tolkien read that. I mean, there's no reference that Tolkien made, but the timing of the book and the sort of genre that it is, you know, it's it's quite possible that Tolkien would have run across it. So it's not, it's more inferred than, you know, absolute, hmm. but it's possible. Especially since, I mean, they had moots for heaven's sake. I mean, how, that's not like a common thing, right? Well, I mean, Tree it's, beings it's... having moots. <laughs> It's an interesting coincidence. Uh, it's um, it's it's. Uh, I mean, yeah, the word "moot" is a is a, a. I mean, is a word. I mean, it's not like right. a tree beard invented word, or right, something. Right. Um, right. So, but it is like a. You know, it's it's basically it's a kind of an obscure word for that. So the fact that that obscure word would be used by a meeting 
for three people by somebody else is a kind of a strange coincidence, but not right, uh, right. not <laughs> totally impossible to be. Uh, to be but 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 no, you're right. The, you're right. What, what, one other thing to take from you know the Douglas the Douglas Anderson answer to this question is that is not much you know the fact that we have to appeal to a really obscure early fantasy you know first half of the 20th century fantasy writer to find another example shows you that no they're not just out there all over the place this is not something right. that was a common motif uh, in traditional mythology you got right. lots of significant trees. But that idea of like a sentient walking, talking tree is not common. Um, so yeah, yeah. Anyway, I should run. So but really, thanks everybody. Really thanks briefly. again for your patience uh, in oh, waiting. Oh, really briefly. Dave's got something. Yeah. No, 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 no. Oh, don't worry know. about. It. I'll tell you. I'll tell you. We'll end the show and then I'll tell you. Okay. All right. <laughs> so anyway, so th- thanks again for your patience in uh, in in waiting, and I hope that. Uh, We'll be able to get a little bit more reliable after this now that my move is done and uh, my schedule should be coming down some. I keep saying that, but, uh, you know, it's getting truer. Uh, it's likelier to be true now than ever before. Uh, so we'll see. But anyway, um, not that that's saying much, but whatever. Anyway, so we will we'll, we'll, we'll try our best. But thanks again for everybody's uh, flexibility and, uh, and enthusiasm. And uh, we will look forward to uh, speaking with you guys again soon. I think we'll probably t- talk about the end of the movie. Uh, it's what we're likely thinking about next or... Um, soon anyhow so jazz yeah, right. is so yeah, not so for, not very forthcoming so it's kind of getting hard to pick two topics that we haven't already talked about yeah it is we're, we're no, if we sit down and brainstorm we'll come up with all kinds of obscure oh, worthy oh, of douglas anderson details oh okay all right so i'm not yeah. worried then yeah no there's still definitely more things we could do anyway and we shall do them soon <laughs> <laughs> so thanks again for listening everybody and godspeed